I would invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 3 for our message today entitled, The Gracious Judge. The Gracious Judge. As part of our series, Behold Your God. In 1983, Alexander Solzhenitsyn won the Templeton Prize for his contribution to the progression of religion. Solzhenitsyn was a a Russian Orthodox uh, priest and lived in the context of the despotic and murderous atheism of the USSR. His influence worldwide really came as a result of his books where he wrote novels and history Uh, Histories that revealed to the world the evils of the Soviet systems of oppression and labor camps. As he received the Templeton Prize, he gave a memorable acceptance speech where he began this way. Quote, over half a century ago, while I was still a child, I recall hearing a number of older people offer the following explanation for the great disasters that had befallen Russia. Men have forgotten God. That's why all of this has happened. Since then, I have spent well nigh 50 years working on the history of our revolution. In the process, I have read hundreds of books, collected hundreds of personal testimonies, and have already contributed eight volumes of my own toward the effort of clearing away the rubble left by that upheaval. But if I were asked today to formulate as concisely as possible the main cause of the ruinous revolution that swallowed up some 60 million of our people, I could not put it more accurately than to repeat, men have forgotten God. That's why all of this has happened. Unquote. His speech went on to address not only the wickedness of the Soviet Union, But he gave an insightful analysis of Western and Eastern nations, reflecting that while the problems are different, every nation is beset by sin, which rises out of the core issue that men have forgotten God. There's no doubt that his analysis is correct. It's also true that While men and women may not always forget God, sometimes the problem is that we reject what God himself has revealed about himself. We develop distorted ideas in our minds of who God is, and then we look at life and distorted, and excuse me, and develop irrational thoughts and make foolish choices. All of the wrong that we see in the world today comes down to distorted ideas of God, whether by forgetfulness or outright Rejection. In Genesis 3, we see how distorted thoughts of God cast mankind and all creation under the judgment of God. But we also see that in the midst of judgment, God extends extraordinary grace. Last week, we considered Genesis 1 and many other passages that reveal God as creator. We learn that all that we see came into being through the word of God, and it was very good. Genesis 2 takes us back to that day six of creation and gives us the details of how God made Adam and Eve and established the covenant of marriage. Our familiarity with these first two chapters desensitizes us to the astounding truth 
that we hold in our hands an accurate history of the first seven days of all time, space, and matter. Well, Genesis 3 also recounts for us what happened on a particular day, but it wasn't day 8. We don't know how much time passed between Genesis 2.25 and Genesis 3.1. My best guess is that it would be on the order of weeks or perhaps months. I doubt it can be years because obedience to the Lord would mean that they would have children sooner rather than later. Now, this chapter, as you know, is most often referred to as the fall. Perhaps like mine, our Bibles, yours also has the heading, The Fall of Man. This refers to the fact that when Adam and Eve woke up that morning, they anticipated another glorious day in the Garden of Eden. They enjoyed marriage with, an un, with, 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 a, uh, with a sinless spouse. And they had perfect fellowship with God. But when they lay down to sleep that night, they had been cast out of the garden. Their marriage was marred by guilt and shame. And their relationship with God was broken. On this day, mankind fell from a state of innocence, brought the curse of death into the world, and cast the human race headlong into a state of sinfulness. Now, as much as this chapter reveals about the fall of man, this chapter, at the same time, is about God. Here we learn about the character of the Creator through what He says and doesn't say, and through what He does and doesn't do. It's clear that God judges, but throughout this chapter we learn that the judge is a gracious judge. That is to say, He doesn't allow sinners to go unpunished, but He extends extraordinary grace and hope and life even to those who turn their back on Him. Well, rather than reading the entire chapter up front, we're going to let the drama in the garden unfold before us. We'll watch this drama, if you will, in four acts. Act number one is conversation about God. Conversation about God. Act number two, confrontation with God. Act number three, consequences from God. And act number four, covering by God. Conversation, confrontation, consequences, and covering. Let's begin with Act 1, conversation about God. Look as I read chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden. The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die, for God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise. She took from its fruit and ate. She gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. The eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. We're immediately introduced here to the serpent. The New Testament in 
Revelation 12, 9 and chapter 20, verse 2 clearly identifies the serpent as Satan himself. Where did Satan come from? Though the scripture tells us how God made the material universe, it is silent on his creation of angelic beings. A speculative but reasonable argument can be made that God made the angels right before Genesis 1, perhaps to watch and worship him as he made the material universe. Among the angels, there are different classes, if you will, and uh, Ezekiel 28 indicates that the being we now call Satan was created as perhaps the most beautiful and glorious one of all. Ezekiel 28 verse 17 says, speaking to Satan, your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom by, your, by reason of your splendor. Satan became prideful and Ezekiel 14 quotes from him as saying, I will raise my throne above the stars of heaven. I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. Setting himself in competition and opposition with God, the great deceiver deceived a third of the angels and God cast them all out of heaven. And since that moment, he has been called the Satan, which means the adversary. In fact, Whenever you come across the name Satan in the scripture as it's translated in English, both in Hebrew and in Greek, in almost every case, it is the Satan. There's a definite article in front of the name. He is the adversary. His goal has been to destroy the work of God by creating a kingdom for himself. And because he can't create anything himself, all he can do and what he wants to do is take glory and worshipers from God. And so that's why he takes it upon himself here to talk to Eve. Now, the Bible indicates that Satan and his demons can't take on a physical form. And so when they want to engage with creation, with people, they uh, indwell other beings, either people or animals. And here we see that Satan indwelled, inhabited the body of a serpent because the crafty, inherent nature of a serpent matched and fit with his deceptive purposes. Now, a talking serpent would shock any one of us if we came across one, but apparently it didn't shock Eve, given that she carried on this conversation normally. It's less likely that she was used to talking animals and more likely that because of her innocence and young life, they were constantly, Adam and Eve, experiencing new things. There was never any danger. There was never any threat in the Garden of Eden. There was never anything to be afraid of. And so when they encountered new things, they weren't startled. They're like, wow, this is a, a new wonderful discovery of God. So innocence and naivety prevented alarms from going off in her head. Well, notice what the serpent then says to Eve. He says, Indeed has God said, you shall not eat from any danger. Excuse me. Indeed has God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden. This is not a genuine question seeking clarification. This is a rhetorical question using false information intended to suggest that God is cruel and stingy. If you look back at chapter 2, verse 16, it says, The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may freely eat, but 
from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. God's statement emphasizes freedom and generosity. But then the serpent's statement, if you see it again, he says, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden. The serpent deceptively acts acts like someone who's shocked at information that they've heard. It's like he's saying, can you believe what I heard? I heard that God's forbidding you from eating from any tree of the garden. Well, notice Eve's response then in verse 2. The woman said to the serpent, from the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. The serpent's first salvo was squelched by Eve's correction. Eve doesn't quote God verbatim from chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, but that's because Eve wasn't there when God said those things. Uh, She was created afterward, and so it's likely that she got her information about that command from Adam, who probably explained it to her using different, perhaps more words, whatever it would have been. And by adding that they couldn't touch it, Eve expressed the fact that she understood the spirit of the law, not the letter of it. They were to stay away from that tree. Well, for the moment, it seems that the serpent's attempt to deceive Eve, to plant that seed of suspicion, failed. But but did it? Let's keep reading. Uh, To the accurate statement that she said that the consequences for eating the fruit of the tree was death, the serpent says in verse 4, you will not surely die. This is no longer a subtle attempt to doubt God's goodness. This is a direct challenge to God's character. God's lying to you, he said. But that's not all. Look at verse 5. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. It's as though Satan is saying here, God's not only lying to you, he's doing it to keep you from being like him. He's afraid of competition. He doesn't want you to know what he knows. He wants to keep you suppressed and ignorant. Now that's quite a statement given the fact that God has just given them authority over all the earth to fill it and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and the cattle and every creeping thing. They were given the intelligence and the authority to rule over the earth and the serpent wants them to focus on the one thing They couldn't have. That is the nature of discontentment. Well, that subtle seed that was planted by the serpent's initial rhetorical question is now a well-watered, fertilized seed that is starting to grow. I want you to notice as you think about what the serpent says there that he does not tempt Eve to eat the fruit. He does not suggest it. He does not recommend it. He only did one thing. He changed Eve's view of God. And in changing her view of God, he opened her heart to view life differently. That's why I've emphasized in the last couple messages that our view of God is the most important thing about us. How you view God in one way or another will determine how you view everything else in life. What we're about to read in verse 6 is a sentence of incalculable significance. Look at verse 6. 
When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Here we see not only what happened in that moment, but what always happens when we are tempted. Every temptation that you and I face, just like Eve, is an effort to get us to take off the lens of God's truth and then create our own interpretation of life as we see it. Eve looks at this fruit from which or which she has never really looked at before in this way. Now, she's probably glanced at the tree. She's probably wondered about the tree. But, she, but it never grabbed her attention like this. This time, with God's trustworthiness in question, the fruit looked different. Her gaze was drawn to it, and she gave it properties that it never had before. What was once a source of danger was now a legitimate source of food. The shape and the color of the fruit was somehow more vibrant than it was before. What was just just another type of fruit she now saw as uniquely attractive. And though she had no way of knowing this, she came to believe that it had the unique power to give wisdom to those who ate it. Now, perhaps she thought, the serpent's right. God's been holding out on us. I I, I didn't notice this before, but this is the best fruit in the garden and, and he won't let us eat it. He's been holding us back from our potential. How does he expect us to rule over the earth without the necessary knowledge that this tree would give us? Well, of course, we don't know what she was thinking, but whatever it was, she decided that God could not be trusted and that she had to take her own life in her hands for her own benefit. So she took from the fruit and ate, and when she didn't keel over dead, she concluded she must have made the right decision, and so she gave it to her husband with her, and he ate. It's right here that we see the first evidence of God's grace. Consider what verse 7 does not say. Verse 7 does not say, and this is how the first couple died. After this, God created a new man and a new woman. That's grace. Adam and Eve embraced a false view of God and elevated their thoughts about themselves above his. Thinking to become wise, they became fools. Listen, God, uh, Eve thought that the tree would give her wisdom. What she didn't realize what she, is that she already had wisdom. Up to this moment, she had a right fear of the Lord, which is the beginning of wisdom. What she thought would make her wise made her a fool. And, and here is one of the universal truths of life. Sin makes you a fool. Look at verse 7. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. Now, if you look back at chapter 2, verse 25, the last verse, it says, The man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Verse 7, they're still naked, but this time they're ashamed. 
Here, their rebellion against God revealed their vulnerability. Having rejected God's protective word, they realized that they were now exposed, susceptible to being mistreated and put to shame. At this point, the right thing to do would have been to call out to God and ask for his help, realizing their grave mistake. They should have repented of their sin, uh, recognizing their desperate need for protection. They should have cried out for their creator and sought his forgiveness. But no, sin made them foolish. So in a flimsy attempt to solve their problems, they themselves quickly put, uh, gathered some large fig leaves, made some string, and attempted to cover themselves. That is the act, end of Act 1. Next comes Act 2, confrontation with God. Look at verses 8 to 13. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me. And I ate. God is so gracious here. He could have appeared to them while they were making their leafy loincloths and caught them in the act. Or he could have bellowed from heaven words of condemnation. He could have done any number of things that would have caused them to fall to their knees in fear and terror. Instead, you know what he does? He He gives them opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to confess their sin. He doesn't rush upon them. He comes to them slowly, giving them notice that he's nearby. He doesn't declare to them what he knows. He asks questions. And when God asks questions, it's not to gain information. It's to give opportunity for people to come to their senses. God is gentle and merciful and kind in his response to their rejection of his goodness and provision. Well, they heard the Lord coming. Uh, When they heard the Lord coming, they should have realized that they were caught and needed to come clean with God. Instead, sin made them foolish again. They convinced themselves that they could hide from God. Perhaps they thought maybe God won't find us and he'll think we're not home and he'll go away. Well, whatever they were thinking, it was just as rational as the thoughts you and I have when we think we can get away with our sin. Here again is grace. The Lord doesn't come to where they're hiding and say, come on out. He doesn't call out as he's walking through the garden. I know you're hiding. Get out here. No, he asks a question. Adam, where are you? Well, seeing that they can't escape, they do finally come out. And Adam says there in verse 1, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. Adam acknowledges here that the fig leaves were a failed solution. He's still wearing them, but they didn't really cover his nakedness. 
the shame of sin went deeper than the exposed skin. He could no longer stand before his creator guiltless and shameless. And instead of addressing Adam's fear, the Lord goes to the more pertinent question. Look at the first part of verse 11. Who told you that you were naked? This is an important question because Adam and Eve's source of knowledge was supposed to be God and God alone. They were to understand themselves and find their identity through God's revelation to them. And so by saying that they were naked, Adam says something about himself that God had not revealed. Now, I don't know if after asking that question, Adam hesitated in his response, but Then the Lord asks another question there in verse 11. Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? Well, here it is. Here is the prime opportunity to confess. But no. Why? Because sin makes you foolish. Instead of confessing his sin, Adam shifts the blame. He perhaps looks over at Eve and he says, the woman But then he turns back to God and says that you gave to me. She gave me from the tree and I ate. Instead of taking responsibility and seeking forgiveness, Adam blames God's gift and God himself for his own failure. Again, how incredibly gracious of God to not judge Adam on the spot. The creator could have sent fire down from heaven and consumed him like he did with Nadab and Abihu. Uh, He could have opened up the earth and swallowed Adam like he did with Korah and his family. Or he could have simply just caused him to fall over dead like he did with Ananias and Sapphira. There are many ways that the Lord could have rightly judged Adam in an instant. Instead, the Lord continued to sustain Adam's life and breath. This is grace. Instead of addressing Adam, he then turns to Eve In verse 13, and he says, what is this you have done? Well, Eve follows her husband's example. And instead of taking responsibility for the fact that she had listened to a competing voice who challenged God, she then points to the serpent. Now, the serpent, the last time we heard from the serpent was back in verse 5. After that moment, when Eve and Adam ate the fruit, Uh, They went off and made leaves for themselves to cover cover themselves. And then they heard the Lord and they went off and hid from the Lord. And so it's not clear why is it that the serpent is right there where they now stand before God. Either perhaps the Lord in his sovereignty and silently called the serpent to come to that group gathering. Or perhaps knowing the evil one, he wanted to witness what God would do with Adam and Eve, and so he was just nearby listening in. Whatever the case, he was there for the confrontation between God and Adam and Eve. Well, Act 2 is done. Now it's time for Act 3, consequences from God. From now on, there are no more questions from God. There is no more dialogue. Everything is out in the open. Everyone knows what's happened Now it's time for judgment. As we look at God's judgments here on the serpent and Eve and Adam in verses 14 to 19, we're accustomed to thinking that this is nothing more than a series of curses. 
But I hope you leave today with a different perspective. First of all, there's only two curses here, and neither of them are given to Adam and Eve. Also, embedded in most of these statements of judgment is extraordinary grace. We'll take each one in turns. Let's start with the serpent. Look at verses 14 to 15. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. Here there is a curse spoken to the serpent and a promise made to Satan. Some have assumed from this passage that the serpent was originally created with legs, and this curse changed the anatomy to be what we know today. But I would suggest to you that's probably not the best way to understand this. That goes beyond what the text says. In fact, that the curse is not a change in the snake's anatomy is clearly seen in the statement, dust you will eat. If the curse is that the serpent had limbs that were removed we would expect that the statement of his diet would also be consistent and that snakes would eat dirt as their diet today. But that is not what we see in creation. So rather than being a curse that changes the serpent's physiology and diet, what this curse involves is the serpent's humiliation and subjugation. This is to say that the reputation of snakes is that they are despised, hated, and feared. Now, I know there are exceptions. Maybe someone here has a snake in their home. But generally speaking, snakes have always been a a symbol of deception, fear, and danger. Very few of us find snakes to be delightful. Other animals don't even like snakes. You won't see snakes hanging out at the watering hole with other species. In this curse, the Lord relegates snakes to a life of loneliness and constant danger of being trampled or run over. The language of eating dust refers to the fact that they will that as they slither on the ground and as they use their tongues to sense their environment, dust will naturally get into their mouths. Micah 7 verse 16 speaks of the humiliation of God's enemies when it says, they will lick the dust like a serpent, like reptiles of the earth. Licking the dust is elsewhere used in Scripture to refer to those who are brought under subjugation of their conquerors. So the curse of the serpent is humiliation and subjugation. And then in verse 15, the Lord makes a promise to Satan who possessed the serpent. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. Now, technically, the Lord is still speaking to the serpent because that's the creature Satan inhabits. But the scripture makes it clear that the promise made here is to the spirit who deceived Eve, not to the animal itself. This verse is called the Proto-Euangelion. That is pre-gospel. Euangelion is the Greek word for gospel, and it means good news. This promise is bad news for Satan good news for mankind. This promise begins with the fact that God declares war between the serpent, Satan, and mankind. Satan's deception itself was a declaration of war against God and his people. 
he acted out of contempt for Eve and Adam and God. So it could not be that the serpent and mankind would just go their separate ways after such a hostile act. They were now set in opposition to one another. The second aspect of this promise is that though this war would be protracted, and even though Satan perhaps, you could say, won this first battle, he will ultimately lose the war. That's what's meant by, he shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. That word translated bruise is really the idea of inflicting a wound. A wound to the heel indeed is crippling, but a wound to the head is fatal. The serpent will wound the seed of the woman in the heel, and the woman's seed will wound the serpent in the head, achieving ultimate victory. Well, who is this seed of the woman? As you read forward in Genesis and through Scripture, that is the question that drives history forward. A legitimate description of the Old Testament is that it's a search for the seed. It starts in Genesis 4 with righteous Abel and then moves on in Genesis 5 with a a list of potential seeds, but they all fail because they all die. Then Noah is born at the end of chapter 5 and his dad thinks that he's the one. Look over at chapter 5, verse 29. Lamech called the name of his son Noah saying, this one will give us rest from our work and from the toil of our hands arising from the ground which the Lord has cursed. Well, the Lord used Noah, of course, to preserve the human race through the flood, but he wasn't the seed. Soon after, we're introduced to Abraham, uh, but the promise made to Abram at the time uh, made it clear that he himself wasn't the seed, but it was through him and his descendants that God would bless the world. On down through the pages of Scripture, it focuses on one man after another after another, as if to say, is this the seed? No. Is this the seed? No. Is this the seed? Well, the identity of the seed remains an open question when you close the Old Testament. But then you open the New Testament and the identity of the seed is revealed in verse 1 of Matthew. It starts, the the record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then at the end of that chapter, a messenger reveals to Joseph, speaking of his beloved betrothed, he says, the messenger says, God will, uh, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. Aha, the very issue that drove separation between God and man, which was created by the serpent deceiving Eve, is the very issue that Jesus himself will deal with. But there's more. The angel then goes on to say, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So the seed of the woman who will defeat and cast the fatal blow to the serpent is not merely a man. It is God himself in the flesh. Now, remember, Satan doesn't know that all the way back in Genesis 3. He doesn't know the future. And so because he doesn't know who the seed is, as the narrative moves forward in history, he is constantly trying to destroy anyone who he thinks will be the seed. And when Jesus is born, Satan does know this is indeed the Son of God. 
And so he threw everything he could at Jesus, even trying to kill him while he was a baby. In the end, he finally figured out a way to kill Jesus, thinking he could defeat God and man in one shot. But what he thought was a fatal blow turned out to be little more than a wound to the heel. Yes, Jesus was laid up on a bed for three days in the tomb. But after three days, he rose victorious over sin and death, securing the victory over Satan. That decisive victory was not the end of the war, but it was the beginning of the end. The end will come when Jesus has reigned on this earth for a thousand years. And Revelation 20 verse 10 says, The devil who deceived the nations was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So the day will come when our adversary, the devil, will be cast into the eternal judgment, never again to deceive or destroy. That victory is what's promised in seed form here in Genesis 3.15. Again, bad news for Satan, good news for us. It reveals how gracious God is that he will not allow the evil one to do his work forever. Satan's not only on a leash, he can only do what God allows him to do. He's also on a countdown timer. Well, let's consider the gracious judgment on the woman in verse 16. Look at it. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain, you will bring forth children. Yet your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. A key to understanding this is to know that the word pain, which is used not only twice here in this verse, but also uh, in verse 17, referring to the toil, where it's translated that way, of Adam working in the field. It's also used in Genesis 5 when Lamech names his son, referring to uh, Noah removing the toil of their hands. So it's not a word that means pain specifically in terms of physical pain. It's a word that really means uh, toil, hardship, difficulty. It's the, the two words there in verse 16, tra- translated pain, are, are slightly different. Both have the same connotation. The second one really refers broadly to strenuous effort, to difficult labor, if you will. So the Lord is not narrowly speaking here of increasing the physical pain of childbirth, though that's unde- undoubtedly part of it. He's referring to the overall difficulty involved with pregnancy and childbirth. Now, with that in mind, there's two possible interpretations of what the Lord means here. You may have a footnote in your Bible on the phrase, your pain in childbirth. That footnote indicates that it can also be translated pain and childbirth, and alternative words would be pregnancy or conception. That's really the literal rendering, which most likely is a veiled reference to a woman's opportunity to conceive. So the question is, is the Lord promising merely to increase the painful labor of childbirth? Or in addition to that, is he also promising to increase the opportunities for the woman has to conceive? Now, either option is possible, but let me explain why I believe the Lord is promising also to increase the opportunities for conception here. Remember that Adam and Eve were created 
to live forever by virtue of their access to the tree of life. Though they were charged to fill, uh, multiply and fill the earth, they had forever to do that task. So it may be that the Lord originally designed Eve's body to have fewer opportunities to conceive. As I said, we don't know how long Adam and Eve lived prior to this day. It may well have been several months. It's not difficult to realize that if Eve's body was the same pre-fall as it is post-fall, that would have created rather unpleasant situations on a monthly basis given that they didn't wear any garments. So it may be that her body's timetable pre-fall was slower and less frequent. Now think about this. If that's true, if her body was slower and less frequent, and it stayed the same after the fall, given the new reality of death, depending on what the original design actually was, it would have made it more difficult for women to bear children during a relatively short lifespan. So what seems like a judgment is a gracious gift from the Lord. Difficult though it would be, the Lord is graciously giving the woman more opportunities within a short lifespan to bear children and fulfill the creation mandate. Yes, pain is involved. Yes, it's toilsome and difficult. Death and sorrow have now entered the world. But along with labor comes more opportunities to experience the joy and blessing of children. Well, that brings us to the next statement there in verse 16, where he says, Yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. The word yet there uh, could also be translated and. It really is that conjunction and. But because of this translation, some have misinterpreted uh, interpreted this to, to say that even though the, the pain of childbirth will be increased, she will still have the desire to be uh, intimate with her husband. But that doesn't really make sense for a couple reasons. First of all, it makes the, excuse me, the next statement, and he will rule over you, rather confusing. How does that relate to her uh, attraction to her husband? But it also doesn't account for how this phrase, your desire will be for your husband, is used in the very next chapter, really just 15 verses later. So the better way to understand what that, uh, that understand this is that the woman will desire to rule over her husband, but her husband will rule or exercise authority over her. This meaning is clear when you look at chapter 4 there, just in my Bible across the page in verse 7 where the Lord says to Cain, if you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? Listen, and if you, do not do, if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you, but you must master it. The word master is the same word translated rule in chapter 3, verse 16. The meaning of chapter 4, verse 7 is obvious and clear. The the desire of sin is to master Cain, to take him over. And therefore, the Lord says to Cain, you need to master sin. You need to rule over temptation. That's universally understood and undebatable. And one of the pivotal interpretation rules of Scripture is that you use the clear passages to be a guiding light to the less clear passages. And so in this case, 
The language is precisely the same. And it's only 15 verses apart from each other. So the meaning has to be the same. Eve would desire to exercise authority over Adam, but Adam would exercise authority over her. Now, please understand that this is not a curse of despotic male domination. The problem is not exercising authority as such, but rather the conflict of competing desires. Order in society is not the result of the fall. In fact, in the eternal state, there will be hierarchy and order and there will be no sin. The problem is sinful abuse of authority and the rejection of legitimate authority. That's the result of the fall. And so what the Lord is saying here is that Eve will desire to, in effect, reject the authority of her husband and take over. Consider the grace of God reflected here. God originally gave and here maintains Adam as the head of the home as a gift of grace to Eve. It was Adam's role to love his wife sacrificially, to give of himself for her care and provision and protection. With Adam as her husband and leader, Eve had a man who would go out and now after the fall work in the field and provide for her and the family. Now, obviously, Adam failed miserably in his role here in Genesis chapter 3. But it was still his role to protect his wife from dangers and threats to her safety and well-being. It was to be his joy and delight to love her uniquely and supremely above all others. Yet, he would indeed rule over her, but his rule was to be a loving rule, a sacrificial rule, a humble rule. Unlike Cain, who was cast away from the family when God judged him, the Lord extended grace to Eve and kept her under the care of her husband. Well, that brings us then to the consequences handed down to Adam. Look at verses 17 to 19. Then to Adam, he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat from it, Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The Lord says here that Adam listened to the voice of his wife. Earlier, as you recall, we aren't told that they had any conversation. It simply says that Adam gave the fruit to her husband and he ate. But here we're giving, given a little insight that they actually had a conversation about the fruit. She talked to him about it. Maybe, maybe she told him how good it tasted. We don't know what was involved in that conversation, but in conversing with him, she explained her reasoning to him and he accepted her logic as more reliable than God's warning. So the issue here is not that he listened to his wife at all, but rather that he listened and trusted her above God. Adam should have shut down the conversation between her and the serpent. He should have stopped Eve from reaching out to grab hold of the fruit. He should have rejected her offer of the fruit. He should have called upon the Lord for help in this situation all the way through. But but no, instead of exercising loving 
leadership and protection, he sat back and kind of let it all happen. And then he ate the fruit in full knowledge of what he was doing. And so because of that, the Lord says, the ground is cursed. Remember that Adam was created from the dust of the ground and the Lord then created the garden and placed Adam in the garden. And that's where Eve was created. The garden was their responsibility to cultivate and care for, and it was their provision of food. But it was never God's intention that all humanity would live within the garden and be sustained by its fruit. In fact, if you look at the end of chapter 1, verse 29, the Lord said when he created Adam and Eve, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of all the earth. And every tree which has fruit yielding seed, it shall be food for you. So humanity had two sources of food from the very beginning. The plants of the field that yield seed and the fruit of the trees that yield seed. In the garden, Adam and Eve enjoyed fruit from the trees, but the field would be where those seed yielding plants would be cultivated and harvested. So the curse is not that they had to now cultivate the field and work outside the garden. The curse is that the ground would work against Adam and his effort to cultivate it. Again, the curse is not that Adam now had to work for his food. The curse is that the work would be toilsome. And as I noted early, earlier, the word toil is the same word for pain in verse 16. The Garden of Eden was lush and productive and it needed to be cared for, but it wasn't exhausting, strenuating, sweat-generating work. But now, instead of merely cultivating and reaping, he would have to beat back the, the vegetation that was not only inedible, but it was also harmful. Now, there's two evidences of grace that we see here. Yes, the work would be toilsome, but... The first evidence of grace is that Adam would still be able to derive his food from the ground. All was not lost. He, he would be sustained by his hard work. It would be difficult, but there would be a reward of life-sustaining food. The second evidence of grace is that this toil would not last forever. God had promised death if they ate the fruit, and indeed death would come. And while it's true that 1 Corinthians 15 describes death as an enemy, and it is a judgment, at the same time, in a sin-cursed world, there is a sense in which death is a mercy. Adam and Eve and their descendants were not left to live in their sinful, toilsome condition for all eternity. I want you to observe that in verses 14 and 17, the word curse is used. It's the serpent that's cursed and the ground that's cursed, but Adam and Eve themselves are not cursed. What God says to Adam and Eve are not curses, but consequences lined with grace. I remind you again that Adam and Eve did not receive that death penalty immediately, which they deserved. The Lord was gracious to extend their life. The entrance of Sin and death into the world through Adam and Eve's sin has many effects beyond what the Lord says here. But with just these few judgments, you can see that while our God is just, He is also gracious. Well, Act 3 is over and we come to Act 4 and we'll call this the covering by God. This will go quick. Covering by God. Look at verse 20. 
Now the man, the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And now he might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. So he drove the man out and uh, at the east of the garden, he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword, which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. We don't have time to look at this in detail, but I want to point out just two evidences of grace here of how God covered Adam and Eve as a form of protection. In verse 21, we see that the Lord replaced their ineffective coverings with garments of skin, thereby covering their nakedness. That this covering was made of animal skin implies that an animal had to give its life. Just a few verses later in chapter 4, we learn that Abel, their son, sacrificed an animal. So it's possible, this is conjecture, but it is possible that it's here that the Lord instructed Adam and Eve in how to make a sacrifice, which they then passed on to their children. Because they needed to learn that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. These clothes of skin made by God are the first hint in Scripture that God himself would be the one to fully and finally cover and wash away the sin of his people. The scripture teaches that the Old Testament sacrificial system was to be a, a constant reminder on a temporary basis of the need for covering sin. But more than that, it was a constant reminder of our need of a Savior who would take away the sin of the world. And so as long as Adam and Eve wore these particular garments made by God Himself, they were reminded that God covered their guilt and their shame. The second act of covering that we see here is the protective covering of the entrance to the garden. In verses 22 to 24, the Lord mercifully prevents mankind from trying to live forever in their sinful condition. So he enlists a cherubim, which is a, a large, powerful, strong angel, and he installs a, a, a moving, flaming sword to cover the entrance. It may well be that the cherubim and the flaming sword remained in the garden and protected the tree of life until God's judgment came at the flood. And so for all who would come as descendants of Adam and Eve, whenever they saw the garden and they saw the cherubim and the flaming sword, they were reminded of what was lost. Well, whenever that was destroyed, the Lord was merciful not to give mankind an opportunity to perpetuate sin beyond the confines of a lifetime. And then as we know, after the flood, the Lord replaced that reminder with the memory of the flood given in the rainbow as a new symbol of God's judgment and grace. Well, we're well out of time, but as you read through the scripture, time and time again, the Lord reveals himself as the judge who is gracious. My friend, there will come a day when God's judgment will not come with grace. As long as we have life and breath, we can experience consequences for our sin, and we can always say that God has been gracious to us even while we receive those consequences. 
But the moment you breathe your last, if you have not put your faith in the seed of Eve, the Lord Jesus Christ, who conquered sin and death on behalf of sinners, you will experience the full and unmitigated wrath of God. So look to Jesus who paid the penalty for sin that you deserve. You can escape God's wrath by believing that Jesus rose or died and rose again and he will come. Let's pray. And as I pray, the men can come in preparation for the Lord's Supper. Our Father, as we look at this passage, there's so much more that could be said, so many insights and details that are remarkable and insightful and helpful to us in our lives. But I pray, Lord, that we would come away from this with that one truth pressing on our mind, and that is that you are a gracious judge. May we never think about you, especially as your children, as one who is angry, overbearing, but rather may we see you rightly as being full of loving kindness, goodness, and grace. May we know that as the gracious judge, you have provided for us a sufficient sacrifice, the Lord Jesus Christ, who's taken away our sin when we trust in him. And may we love him and worship him rightly. And even now, as we celebrate that sacrifice, may you be glorified in our hearts and in our thoughts. In his name we pray. Amen.